what's the next best version of yourself and how you're going to get there? And if we think about ourselves as a work in progress, we'll have a better understanding that we're just one of many people will be across our lifespan. And that also makes folks more apt to work on things. We tend to think of like, you know, I'm done, I'm finished. I have my, you know, undergraduate degree or I've had so many years in my, in my professional education. You're not done. You're never done. What's the next best version of yourself and what are you doing to get there? Welcome to the Disrupted Workforce, where we help courageous professionals explore, expand, and evolve in the future of work. Are you curious to understand how all these disruptions are changing how we work in our careers? Trying to self-assess and build an actionable plan to thrive in the future of work? Looking for research and insights from thought leaders to help you and your organization? Then this is the show for you and you found your tribe. I'm Alex Schwartz. And I'm Nate Thompson. And we are your hosts. TDW Tribe, today is a very special day for us because we get to speak with the one, the only, one of the foremost experts on the future of work, Heather McGowan. Heather is a sense maker, a dot connector, a deep thinker, and a pattern matcher who sees things that others miss. She is transforming the thinking of individuals and entire organizations across the globe with her message about how the next phase of work will focus on continuous learning rather than simply learning once in order to work. As a future of work strategist, Heather helps leaders prepare their people and organizations for the post-pandemic world. As a keynote speaker, she gives lucidity to complex topics through her research-rich graphic frameworks and powerful metaphors. In 2017, LinkedIn rated her as the number one global voice for education. And in 2020, McGowan was listed as one of the top 50 female futurists in Forbes. Try saying that three times fast. New York Times columnist Thomas Friedman describes her as the oasis when it comes to insights into the future of work. Heather is the co-author of the 2020 book, The Adaptation Advantage, which is a must read for anyone trying to make sense of what's happening in the world of work now, and we highly recommend it. And she has a new book about empathy coming out in March of 2023. Heather, we have been so deeply inspired by your work and leadership, and it's an absolute honor to have you on the show. Thank you very much for having me. I'm looking forward to this discussion. Awesome. Let's dive in. Heather, we want to get to know you better. So in an interview last year, you said the new career model is a combination of curiosity passion, and purpose. Tell us about your career journey and how those three words and that combination has shown up for you. Yeah, I didn't plan to be a future work strategist or a keynote speaker. I've never taken a public speaking course. I've never taken a journalism course, but now I've written a couple of books. So that is where I think it's key to follow your curiosity and pay attention to what lights your fire. So I went to art school, undergrad, worked in product design, asked a lot of business questions. Folks said I should go get an MBA, asked more questions, stumbled into academia, redesigned a college, redesigned an undergraduate university, wrote a book on that. And then along the way, I found that I was spending most of my time explaining things to people and using visuals to do it. I had corporate clients and I had academic clients. And I found both on the supply side, which is what education is, and on the demand side, Nobody was really creating nor nurturing the kind of talent we need for the future. We were very focused on trying to close skills gaps and sort of redactive and backward thinking stuff like that. So that sort of launched me into speaking. 
do you do your own creative work? Yes, for the most part in my talks I do when it comes to the book, I usually hire somebody to translate my frameworks and drawings into something that looks more visually congruent throughout the book. It's invaluable. Now, you've been doing this for a while. You've seen quite a lot. You've talked to a lot of folks, a lot of organizations. In your estimation, what percentage of the workforce is ready for the future of work now? Well, it depends on how you define that. I mean, what percentage of the workforce in just raw purpose, passion, curiosity, and innate abilities to adapt? Probably much, much, much higher than we think. I mean, look at what happened over the last eight, 900 days since the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic. Look at how superbly we adapted. That was a forced social experiment on a grand scale. And people rose to the occasion. So we're, we're capable of much more than we give ourselves credit for. But I think our systems of education are still backwards. Our structures for hiring, our ideas about leadership are still stuck, at least in industrial revolution slash generation behind where we are. So I think the people are ready. I think the leadership and the systems need to catch up so that we can really unleash that potential. Totally agree on that. And I think you did an excellent job of kind of highlighting how those traditional structures are now failing us and we're having to rethink those day by day. So in your speaking engagements, you thoughtfully share that we're in the midst of the greatest velocity of change in human history. And it's only going to get faster from here, which I think is easy to say verbally, but is very hard to comprehend as a human being in the context of a corporate structure. There's something really interesting about this insight. It seems to have a disabling effect. In my view, at least, seems to people hear that and they're like, I can't even deal with today. What, what am I supposed to do with a future that's only going to get faster? Um, so I see this show up in corporations too. We can't handle what is, how are we supposed to handle that? What is the way we should think about that challenge and how are people overcoming that? Yeah, I think part of it is expectation, right? So the way we've prepared our workforce is we say, okay, the workforce tells academic institutions or training programs or trade programs, whatever it may be, these are the skills we need. And our model has been, okay, take those skills, codify them into a curriculum, transfer that curriculum into a new set of humans. Then you have a deployable workforce. Then you hire that workforce. And then education is answering the problem that business is saying it has. That model doesn't work anymore because you need about a decade for that to work. And those skills are expiring. So we can't right. that model anymore. And that freaks folks out. And we've seen it on a couple of, you know, just data points. The, the IBM study that said, you know, it used to take three days to close the skills gap. And then two years later, it was 36 days. And the Upwork thing, I think it was 2019 or 20, where 75% of their most demand in-demand skills were not even on the list the quarter before. So that sort of shows you concretely that, that sort of speed. But it doesn't mean we should freak out. I mean, look how we've adapted. If we assume that learning is part of work, we'll be just fine. A skills gap is actually progress. Because when you think about it, a skills gap forms when a human demonstrates a skill, the market values the skill in excess of supply, and you have a gap. If we had all closed skills gaps, we wouldn't be making any progress. So if we presume learning is simply part of work, and we hire people with that expectation and that intention, and we give them the support, we'll be just fine. In a recent interview, you said, and I love this quote, during the first industrial revolution, this is, of course, related to the speed that we've been talking about, during the first revol industrial revolution, when the steam engine was invented, life expectancy was 37 years, workers had two and a half generations, 
to absorb that paradigm shifting change. Now you're going to have to absorb two, three, four, or five paradigm shifts within a single generation. We're not prepared for that. We're not talking about that. Everyone's number one job now is to help people adapt to change. And absolutely adore that quote. And this is a driving force behind your book, The Adaptation Advantage. There are a lot of reasons that people resist change. And, you know, in my own experience, I have to experience a lot of pain to be willing to change. And I tell people, you know, I'm a lot more teachable when I'm on my belly than when I'm standing on my own two feet. And so I wanted to get your thoughts. You know, what are the universal truths that you've discovered about adaptation and how do we make it easier for people to adapt? I understand, you know, that you referenced the pandemic and that's been a forcing function of change, but how do we make it easier when it's, there isn't a forcing function present? Well, I think actually we also have to acknowledge that after a period like a pandemic, it's, it's like when you work out, you know, you go to the gym and you, you run or you lift weights. Either way, you're exhausting yourself. And in the case of lifting weights, you're tearing muscle fibers so it grows back stronger. But key to doing that is rest. You need the recovery time after you work out. And what we've been through is a massive workout. And they, I think the uh, workforce is telling us it needs a rest, whether you look at great resignation or quiet quitting or people who are saying, you know, I'm not taking those conditions. There's a few different things going on. I mean, I think that we're having a collective strike because the power pendulum switched way too far away from the employees for far too long. And then the pandemic was a point that just broke it. The other thing that's going on is we've got labor shortages, which further empowers the workforce. But even if we have an economic downturn, I think we're going to continue to have an empowered workforce. And what you need to do is listen to your people. You know, if a patient's in the hospital, you can't shock the patient continuously or they expire. You have to shock to see if it works. And we've been through a lot of shocks, a lot of trauma, a lot of change. Now we need a period of recalibration and rest and thinking about what's the workplace we really want to build for the workforce that we actually have. We, we kind of built it for one slice of the workforce. We didn't build it for parents. We didn't build it for, for women. We didn't build it for diversity. We're seeing that now with DEI issues that are, are not going away. And that's, I think, because you want the inside of your organization to look like the market you serve. The market is increasingly diverse. Do so you want to see that diversity at every level? And so we're adapting to these a few different changes. I mean, it's the, the trauma and the after effects of the post-pandemic workforce. It's a shift in the power structure. It's a changed demographic in the workforce and their expectations. And there's a labor shortage. And that's a lot at once. I love the metaphor of the the patient. You can't keep shocking the patient. I think that's a, a really apt way to to present it and think about it. Is reflection a part of that? So this idea of, you said, hey, we've gone through a lot. We've done this ultra workout. You can't keep shocking the patient. Typically inside of the corporation, there's not a lot of room for an after action reflection for a, hey, hang on a second. What did just happen there? What did we learn? You know, what do we do well? What, is that happening out there? And not enough. And, and that's absolutely something I saw on the academic side as well. So I built different, I built an integrated college to focus on innovation. I built a, a curriculum for the future of work. In all those instances, I, every faculty member was saying to me, we don't have space in the curriculum because I have to cover so much content. And it was like, for some reason, if you jam content into people, it's a more valuable education. But if you never give them time to reflect, they never connect the dots and make sense of it to figure out how they're going to use it and apply it in different ways. And I think the exact same thing needs to happen with the workforce as well. Absolutely. Yeah. And people like in this conversation, having a, a 
spark kind of role in that of, hey, there's probably universal learning here that we need to codify and give back to the world that, that we can take and apply and not have to go through as much pain the next time. So uh, I love that. Human ab- adaptation is such a huge focus of your book and is really the fundamental crux of what's going on in the world right now. On one hand, we're really good at this. And you've you know, said in the pandemic, we did a global experiment, the greatest experiment in the history of the world to run our businesses remote overnight and reinvent business models and the customer experience. Wow. Okay. And at the same time, we struggled to do basic change. And there's this weird kind of push-pull there, but there's also this beautiful dance, this two-part dance of in change and transformation, there's a letting go while there's a reaching for something else. And and in the same way, kind of tying these concepts together, it seems like we don't do a very good job of the letting go part as we always race for what's next. Innovation is racing for what's next. Corporate is profits and efficiency for what's next. But there's this deeply human side of what are we letting go of? Are we even talking about that? I've never even seen that kind of a conversation inside of an organization. Do Do you see that happening out there? Well, one of the things I've done in the last year on in almost all my talks is make the audience, and they're usually leaders, senior leaders, say those four scary words. I do not know. They're not used to saying it. They're, they're encouraged to, to pretend they know. And then the reality is most folks who are leading teams are leading teams full of people who have skills and knowledge they don't have. And that requires a different type of leadership. So you kind of rush between two things because you're expecting to go from one known or certain state to another known or certain state. And the interim is an interstitial state where there's an opportunity for learning, but it's filled with ambiguity and uncertainty and people simply not comfortable with it. So they want to snap to the next (laughs) form. It's like that old uh, freeze, unfreeze, freeze model. We put in our most recent book, there's no freezing map. (laughs) And it's messy. It's messy. And no one wants to talk about that. Like any change leader is going to say to you, this is going to be messy. And everybody's like, "Can can we just not do the messy, please? Yeah. And then, you know, companies will always ask me, well, who's doing this well? Who can I copy? I'm like, well, why do you aspire to simply copy? Yes. Can't just address sites higher than that. Yes. Well, let's grab one other thread here on this. In the book, you said, hey, adaptability peaks about 20. Research shows us about 20. The majority of the workforce is older than that. That's a challenge. So what is the path forward for all the people who it's harder for them to adapt? Well, it's actually fluid intelligence peaks at 20. So that's your ability to rapidly respond to changing environments. Your ability to adapt goes across the lifespan. And there are lots of cognitive peaks across the lifespan. And we're understanding that better now than we did just a handful of years ago, because most of our studies on cognition come from the 70s. So how we adapt, our brain is a muscle that can respond. And and you you see it in stroke patients who learn to walk again and talk again. We are much more adaptable and pliable than we give ourselves credit for. So while we do concretely have our greatest ability to learn certain things and adapt to certain environments before the age of 20, we have a lot of cognitive peaks across the lifespan and our ability to adapt certainly extends beyond that. Yeah. My brother's a TBI survivor and that neuroplasticity thing, you wouldn't even know today that he had third degree brain tears and lost his identity. And and that for me has been one of the most profound moments of, oh, wow, we can literally relearn to do anything. Well, speaking of identity, that's something your book talks quite a lot about, Heather. And you you reference this terrific quote from the psychologist Dan Gilbert. He says, 
the person you are is as transient, as fleeting, and as temporary as all the people you've ever been. And that is a pretty amazing quote. And now as someone who lived in New York for almost 20 years, I was always really bothered by how quickly people will ask you, what do you do for work specifically within about 30 seconds of meeting you? And I started to ask people, how do you like to spend your time or tell me something that you're excited about as an alternative to try to create a bit more of a a meaningful connection. Now, on this topic of work and identity, you have a, a great question. You say, how do you express your professional expertise in a way that's nimble and adaptive and go on to say, the trick is to root your sense of self to your purpose, passion and curiosity. Work we love, work with purpose is essential for every worker not just the luxury of a few. Curiosity, purpose, and passion fuel lifelong learning and give us our adaptation advantage. Talk to us a little bit more about how you create or help people create a nimble and adaptive work identity. Well, it starts by stop with that stupid question. And I agree with you. I spent quite a bit of time in New York, but I can tell you it's not unique to New York. It's, It's more unique to the United States. You go to other countries... And they'll even ask you your name before they ask you what you do, which we don't always do. No, we don't. No, we don't. What do you do? I'm like, I love it when I'm a speaker and they're like, who are you with? I'm like, I'm with Heather. Who's Heather? I'm Heather. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, I don't get it. I'm like, it's okay. It's okay. (laughs) (laughs) Just take a seat. Keep listening. You'll catch on. (laughs) (laughs) You'll get it in a minute. So one of the, you know, one of the ways I think about it is, you know, who were you, you know, two years ago, three years ago, four years ago, 10 years ago, you're a different version of yourself now. What's the next best version of yourself and how are you going to get there? And if we think about ourselves as a work in progress, we'll have a better understanding that we're just one of many people will be across our lifespan. And that also makes folks more apt to work on things. We tend to think of like, you know, I'm done, I'm finished. I have my, you know, undergraduate degree, or I've had so many years in my in my professional education, or I'm married and I have my children. It's not you're not done. You're never done. What's the next best version of yourself, and what are you doing to get there? Let's apply that to us, me specifically, and I'm going to actually work through this one out loud. Not entirely sure what all is going to come out, but I spent 20 years in corporate doing some things that probably overlap with you: corporate learning, future work, innovation, executive, that sort of thing. So I spent a lot of time around change work, but to be very candid, the going through the pandemic and thoughtfully exploring a new landscape has felt very naked to me in some ways, like, oh, wow, this is messy. This is new. And a couple of examples of that, one of them is the podcast. Alex and I started talking right after the pandemic happened. We said, we need to be having this conversation out loud. We need to be just talking about what's happening to the workforce and and what's happening to human beings. But this interesting thing happened, and it goes right to identity, is we're two years into the podcast, and I thought, I don't know if I should put this on my LinkedIn. Like That was a conscious thought of battling my old identity around, is a podcast, a th- is that even a thing? Is that a job? Is that Would anyone respect that? Will I look like an idiot? <laughs> and I love creating this podcast with Alex. I love having this conversation with you about the future of work. I've never been more passionate about anything. And yet I was having thoughts like, is this even real enough that I can list it? And I think that's kind of the moment, right? Of my identity in there. So, you know, what would you say about that? And then have you had a similar experience even now where you're wrestling with a piece of your identity? 
You know, I, I think of LinkedIn probably differently than other folks. I've never really been looking for a job. I've always been making jobs. So LinkedIn was a place I would post something either under my profile or an article I'm interested in to spur a conversation with somebody, not to create another, you know, little lapel on my general's uniform of my identity, right? So that's not, is for me, and I think that's how LinkedIn should be used to be a learning community where what you share about yourself is a way to make get to that next best version of yourself. You know, that something's going to spur a conversation or connect you with somebody who makes you feel uh, or think differently in a way that allows you to evolve. I haven't had so much of, oh, I can't put that up there because that's not who I am because I'm, I guess I, I fall under the umbrella of a speaker and that's an, enough of an identity. I don't know. So do you resonate with that label or are you like, I'm so much more than a speaker. I'm not even going to call myself a speaker. It's just something that I do. You know, um, for the longest, I, I was speaking and I was writing and I didn't have a title, you know, so there's usually the, you know, former Olympic athlete or, the, you know, ex-CEO. It's like, no, I'm, I'm Heather. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and that wasn't enough for folks. They needed more definition. A label. Right. So a friend of mine went on a website and she's like, okay, you need an adjective, you need a noun, you need a preposition. <laughs> I was like spinning the dials and she came back to me and she said, you should tell everybody your future work. Uh, strategist. So I just started doing that. And people are like, oh, right on. That's good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I <completely> fabricated. <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> it's so amazing because everybody wants to put everyone else as human nature in a box, right? I think that's so much of what you're talking about. It's this desire to categorize and label everything. And that's the unlearning piece that is so powerful. And that to me, you know, you, you have a lot of really strong messages out there that I think people need to hear, but that to me was right at the top because I think that's where a lot of folks are going to get stuck in that, Hey, I don't have the label for my box anymore. I'm not able to get my arms around this idea of transient identity, or I'm not who I was, and I don't know who my best future self is going to be and how to label that. And I love the way that you've answered the question, because I think it will help a lot of people. But I do think it's an area where, where people are going to need a lot more help going forward. Yeah, and it really, it, it certainly falls into work, because one of the things I talk to, you know, my audiences, my clients about is, you know, we, we've got this model where we create a job description. And it's it's a box on an org chart. And it's usually defined by the last occupant. And it's full of irrelevant qualifications. And usually, if you really tightly define it, by the time you get the person in and operating, many of those qualifications aren't really relevant anymore. And haven't been for a long time. Right. And so, um, you know, the, I was reading this morning that, you know, I've been reading over the last couple of weeks, the rise and rise of companies that are just dropping university degree requirements. Now, I'm not an anti-education. It's just they're suddenly realizing that wasn't the best proxy to get people. And it got in the way sometimes of getting, you know, and, and offering some social mobility to folks. I think that was getting in the way. We've been talking about that fact that pedigree is changing, this notion of pedigree and the need for pedigree. And, it, you, and you, of course, have been talking quite a lot about how fast skills are changing. And for some, it's less about you know, skills or degrees, but is it about learning? And one of those folks is, is Ginny Romady, who you interviewed, the CEO of IBM. And she said, I expect AI to change 100% of the jobs in the next five to 10 years. You know, that is a seismic shift. 
And it means that the function of HR is going to have to change a lot. You know, how do you kind of unpack that? How do you make sense of that from a hiring perspective? Um, first of all, I would probably change the word AI to technology because I think AI implies an intelligence that I'm not sure technology has quite yet. I say like artificial cognition usually instead of AI. But technology is certainly changing, I would agree, 100% of jobs. I think HR is really the MVP going forward. You know, if you look back at global financial crisis 2008, your CFO was the MVP. They kept the, the lights on, you know, in the organization. They kept things rolling. Um, and then we, as we went into the pandemic so rapidly and you went from, you know, 10 central offices to 100,000 home offices, your CTO or your CIO was your, your MVP. And now going forward, you've got an empowered workforce that knows they're empowered. And even if we go through a recession or a retraction of some sort, it still is dependent upon your workforce. I mean, recalculation of the S&P 500, 1975, 83% of the value of all the companies on the S&P 500 came from tangible capital because we made stuff. And so humans were just a cost to contain in making stuff. We took tangible stuff, we made other tangible stuff out of it, and we tried to keep the cost of that human down. Now 90% of the value on the S&P 500 comes from intangible capital, which is ideas. That's human activity. So we're in the human value era. And the ability to unlock that human value is really going to fall on the folks who can figure out how to attract it, nurture it, organize it, replenish it, refuel it. That's that's HR. So I think it's a CHRO kind of flanked with the chief diversity officer and the chief learning officer are going to be your MVPs going into this next era. Taking that one step further, just quickly, the traditional CHRO, I would estimate is going to be unfit largely unless they get a lot of development, I would say you're probably going to see a lot of new people coming from other areas uh, to kind of help stem that, to go, hey, there's, we got to think about this very differently. Or, or those folks, if you talk to them, and I talk to a lot of them, a lot of them have wanted this for so long and have not been listening. Yay. Let's, let's, let's you know, support the folks who've been in there trying, because I know a lot of them who are, who are like, finally, they're listening to us. Our, our role has been to unleash human potential, but we've been stuck you know, relegating benefits and stuff. Yeah. And, and HR is full of good people who want to make a huge impact. Um, and I a hundred percent agree with you. Now is the time for HR to take that huge step forward. There's a chapter in your book, Heather, that I, was personally my favorite. And you represent a side of this conversation that no, it, to the best of my knowledge, no one else is doing like you. And that makes you very unique. And that is this cultural and social norms conversation. Everybody wants to talk about AI or the internet of things, a blockchain or whatever, and that's great. But almost no one wants to touch the conversation of, hey, there are some really broad social structures that are being disrupted right now. Things like identity, marginalized groups, gender identity, religion, the composition of a family, and, mm-hmm. and, and mental wellness, the, the idea that the workplace is fundamentally impacting our health. These are huge topics that you're leading the charge on. And those conversations for decades have not been welcome at work. A very, very small audience would even engage that conversation. So is it time to go loud? Is it time to have these deeper conversations? And do you feel like the corporation's ready to have them? Obviously not everyone, but from my experience, many, many more of them than when I wrote that book. Uh, that the adaptation advantage is I go into, you know, looking at the next book coming out and it was the last couple of years I don't know if it was the the humanity of the pandemic, but we have humanized the workforce. And that's, I think, what's underpinning the, the greats, you know, the great resignation, great reset, great reshuffle. 
all of those things are really a humanization of work. And it does come from, you know, the existential crisis of a pandemic, but also these broad social changes. And some of them have been decades in the making, like our changing demographics. 18 and under in the U.S., there's no racial majority. Gen Z is not going to put up with the BS that prior generations have put up with. They are intentional in, in not describing themselves in any fixed way in terms of sexuality and gender, or many of them. Many more of them declare part being part of the uh, LGBTQ plus community. Many more of them than I've ever seen. We've seen a doubling every generation, a doubling of every generation of LGBTQ plus. And even as a subset of that, and I call it as a subset because it's moved so quickly, how folks define themselves in terms of gender. You look at the workforce right now, uh, Gen Z is about 13% or a little under that, and they'll be 30 before we know it. Millennials are the largest share of the workforce, but millennials and Gen Zs both, by a margin of 50 and 55%, don't want to see fixed and excluding gender markers in the workforce. So when I stand on stage and I talk about this stuff, I'm like, so why am I talking about this when it comes to work? Because it does impact you. It impacts the the social norms. Um, Composition of the family, we've pretended it's mom and dad and 2.5 kids. We've been below population replacement for quite some time. 40% of children are are born outside the uh, institution of marriage, however you define it. So we really haven't caught up in our mental models with the reality of our society. And I think the response to it uh, politically, unfortunately, has been absolute polarization, yep. painting each other in, in ways that I don't think either which either one of which are, are fair. But that's a way in which we're trying to adapt as a society. And and I think we'll get there. I think the moral arc does bend toward justice. I, I do. And I am pro-diversity. So I think we will get there. It makes us stronger as a society, but I think it's it's painful for a lot of folks right now. Yeah. So all of those things, Alex and I are huge fans of, and we're super happy that conversation is happening and that you're carrying that torch. One of the other things just to tie to this that we're hearing is the idea of product inclusion. So as people start to build products, digital or physical products, that someone now can represent that diversity and inclusion conversation at the product level, which is, this is very forward. Yeah, it's uh, it's definitely true. I mean, it started a million years ago and, you know, but there was different versions of Barbie and there was, you know, so we're starting to see some of that diversity when they started making, you know, children's dolls that were different ethnicities and different hairstyles and different outfits. We started to, and I remember my sister, I'm, I come from a family of interracially adopted children. So I have two siblings who are Korean and it was a struggle when we were kids to find dolls that look like them and toys that look like them. And it's it's not right to not see yourself reflected in things. And I think that's part of the DEI story is when you see a diverse executive that you know looks like you, feels like you, talks like you in some way, you say, that's now possible for me. Yes. So that is a great example of the kind of executive that we need. Let's talk about the executive that we have in the news today, Elon Musk. <laughs> I know this guy has flown a little too close to the sun. He wrote a couple of really great posts on LinkedIn about it. And I'll share a couple excerpts with our audience. You said, the workforce is empowered. They want trust, autonomy, and respect. Bullying and humiliation don't work anymore. If you pray, please say a prayer that Elon Musk realizes someday he is not a god. And then you go on to say, we start seeking leaders who can be authentic, vulnerable, curious, and caring with a focus on inspiring potential rather than leading with domination or fear. Now, Elon's behaviors made him the recent poster child for toxic leadership. 
bullying and a lack of empathy. Uh, I think you can also argue that pre-pandemic, this is behavior that was running rampant and was largely tolerated. And so I'm starting to wonder, is this moment of reckoning for him at Twitter, is this a tipping point for a more empowered workforce? Are we going to look back and say, this put the microscope on leaders to be more human, more relational, and more thoughtful in a way that didn't exist before now? Well, I hope so. And that puts a lot on Elon that I'm not sure is necessarily fair. He's he's called a lot of it on himself by his behavior. But, you know, if you kind of separate things out, you know, we've had a real decline in religious participation. And I'm not religious myself in this country. And I do wonder if in the absence of that, people have turned some tech folks into deities that, you know, really shouldn't have been. And we've set some expectations and responsibilities and some acceptable behaviors with them around that and Elon included in that. And, you know, I think the difference between what he's supposedly, I'm not even really clear what he's trying to do with Twitter versus what he did with his other enterprises is he has sort of more of a higher calling with the other ones. You know, with Tesla, it was to get us off the combustion end as and, you know, reduce our reliance on fossil fuels. With, uh, you know, SpaceX, it was to actually even imagine inhabiting other planets. Those are lofty aspirations where people say, I want to be part of that because it's something bigger than myself. It's going to be breaking barriers. And I will work 100 hours a week to do it for some period of time because of two reasons. One, I'm part of something bigger than myself, doing something that's never been done before. And two, I'm going to be really rewarded for it financially or socially in that I can say I was attached to that when I go do whatever I do next. Now, Twitter already exists and it's been around for, what, 10, 15 years? So fixing it doesn't have that same higher purpose, or at least he hasn't articulated it. So it's just simply coming in with what is sort of a startup mentality and also does work in startup to an existing entity. I'm not sure that's going to work. But is it going to, you know, I've been reading some stuff. I think it was a Wall Street Journal had some today or yesterday about is is Elon Musk expressing the rage that a lot of leaders feel because they can't. Probably. They, are there a lot of leaders out there hoping Elon wins and we get a return to the behavior that was acceptable in 2018, 2019? I, I hope not. That's not our highest, best, next version of ourselves. I don't think. But it will be interesting to, to see what happens. I think a lot of folks are watching. Some are wishing for him to succeed so that they can establish old norms. Others are expecting him to fail spectacularly. I, I think Twitter has a place. It needed to be fixed. I hope he can fix it. But I feel badly for the lives they're getting crushed in the process. Yeah, I like what you mentioned about the nuance of the calling and the higher purpose at Tesla and SpaceX. Nate and I did talk uh, over the summer about how he was trying to force most of the employees, if not all the employees, back to the office at Tesla for, you know, for for fully an office that seemed, you know, premature at the time. And he got blowback for that. And I think just the some of the swagger or the way that he walked into Twitter, you know, the everything but the kitchen sink sort of metaphor as he came in. And I think, you know, your, your next book's on empathy. And it just feels to me that there, there wasn't this sense of what have these people been through? How do I come to the table in a way that's thoughtful? How do I share my visions thoughtful? How do I listen more? Those were the things that, that I personally felt allergic to from, from the outside. Well, even if he thought the business model was, broken and he just came in and said, I'm going to get rid of everybody attached to the old business model because they're never going to listen to the new vision. He still hasn't, at least externally, articulated what the new vision is and shown the behaviors that he's trying to unleash the human potential and activate the passion and purpose of the people who are there. It just seems to be an entire bully and humiliation play. At least that's how it looks from the outside. 
Well, he did share a picture of his nightstand with a gun and some caffeine-free Diet Cokes on it. <laughs> there is something, Heather, that you said that I think is really interesting. The toothpaste is out of the tube. A mind expanded can never regain its original form. Even if the bully command and control approach persists, I think too much has changed in the pandemic. I just can't imagine the U.S. and global workforce going, yeah, we're on board to be treated like garbage again. I think it's, we're just too far past that. Yeah. And you know what? The, the thing that I think folks should realize is you had to trust your people. And it's not about where workplace takes place. It is for some folks because it does allow diverse candidates and disabled candidates not have to commute, which was a hardship. It relieves the hardship for, for some folks. But it's not broadly speaking about where work takes place. It's about how you interact with and how you listen or don't listen to your people. So you had, you know, 800 days or whatever it was of listening to your people, giving them trust, allowing them to develop agency and giving you business continuity in unprecedented times. And you're forgetting that. Mm. And that's, that's, I think, the most damaging piece of it. Yes. Going back to that, what we said earlier, reflection. What was beautiful about that last moment? Um, we are, Alex mentioned your book, super excited about empathy coming out in March of 2023. We uh, talked to Sherry Turkle on the podcast over the summer, who is, you know, a big player in the empathy space. And one of the things that she said is empathy is not linear. It meanders and it's messy and it takes time. And the corporation is about efficiency. And can we do it in two hours? And there's a, a real challenge there to deeply get empathy, embrace empathy, give and share and receive empathy, get it in your bones. So I was wondering... If you could give us a little bit of a preview, maybe about how you're approaching the empathy conversation and if your intention is to kind of foster that in the corporation. Yeah. So the the, the premise that uh, Chris Shipley and I but were co-authored for my last book is also co-author in this book, is that the, the workforce is now empowered and it takes a different type of leadership. And and my, my thesis is that there are four fundamental shifts that need to take place. We've had two transformations. The first is a change relationship between individuals and organizations. Individuals are now empowered. The workforce is now humanized. The second shift is from linear to complex. And that's a result of 15 years of digital disruption. That's a result of the emergence of skills and knowledge at such a rapid rate that we can't codify and transfer them. So it's that reality that you likely are managing people who have skills and knowledge you don't have. So because of those two transformations, we have to make four leadership shifts. The first is a shift in mindset from managing process, managing people, Everybody works for you. You're the boss to enabling success because the reality is the success of your team is your success. They have skills and knowledge you don't have. They often have skills and knowledge that they don't have, you don't have in duplicate. So they need each other. So your focus is on enabling the success of that team as opposed to simply driving productivity. Um, the second shift is a shift in culture from peers as competitors to peers as collaborators. When everybody was sort of interchangeable, fungible units of productivity, you could pit them against each other and things like forced rankings. But now there's so much unique skills and knowledge. You need to see them as collaborators and you need to change the tone of the environment so they see each other as collaborators. Uh, this third is a shift in approach. We're not going to be able to learn and adapt at the speed, scale, and scope that we need through th punishment, threats, and rewards. It simply won't work. The need is too great. So you've got to help people get in touch with their own intrinsic motivation like, so that they, you sculpt jobs around things they're interested in. They're naturally learning on their own. They're what I call self-propelled. And then the final is a shift in behavior from driving productivity with domination or fear 
to leading with inspiration, effectiveness, and um, caring and love. It's a different type of leadership. And all of those things to get through the two transformations and the four shifts, it's entirely dependent upon empathy. Love it, love the word love came into that conversation. Like, what a beautiful way to bring empathy into the conversation with a word that most people probably don't feel comfortable saying, sometimes even to their family, let alone. Yeah. Yeah. But at the same time, I also say to people, you know, that whole kind of bullshit that, you know, we, your work's your family. No. <laughs> Work can be a community, it can be an important one, and belonging is one of those things that I think diversity, equity, inclusion really needs to be diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Because if you don't have belonging, you don't have the power of diversity, equity, inclusion. So your workplace should be a community and an important one, but it's not your family, it's not your everything, and it shouldn't be. I really like the rubric that you shared, those those four pillars. I think this, this book is going to be fantastic, Heather. I can't wait for everybody to check it out. You said that digital transformation is human transformation. And, you know, from our perspective, there's no question that digital is fundamentally changing every aspect of the human experience. And a lot of those changes are great. And some of them are really concerning. How do you consider putting people and planet first as we race toward our digital future? Well, I think that, you know, when the first time I said digital transformation, simply human transformation, it was the reality that, you know, things like the tools that we're now using, like we're on Zoom today and we acted like it was new in the pandemic, it was 10 years old. So we started embracing the tools we had had around us. So our digitization of our economy or our society is really going to depend on changes in human behavior. And we have to make a decision about, is this something that improves the human condition or is this something that diminishes the human condition? And I think the jury's out on a lot of social media. Is it going to unite us or divide us? And it's done a little bit of both. And it's going to be interesting to see going into the next decade if we have the same platforms, the same CEOs, the same paradigms. Do we accept the same things? Because we could go into a very scary place when we start getting more and more advanced technologies where we really can't tell what's real. Yeah, where you can have a what seems to be a very authentic relationship with an artificial intelligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not far I mean, from we've that. got AI as a conduit to bringing the dead back to life. That's one of the next use cases that a lot of folks are talking about is how do you use AI and 3D imaging to to bring people that we've lost back to life? And you kind of wonder, you're like, is that that really is very gray for me? I mean. There's a lot of nuance there that feels very icky and creepy and uncomfortable. And then there's parts of that that say, hey, you know, maybe there's a way to introduce loved ones that you've lost to future generations in a way that could be cool. Yeah. We're going to need a whole lot more people studying ethics because I think there's a lot we didn't have to figure out before. If you're interested in that, there's an interest that's fascinating and scary Black Mirror episode on that if you haven't seen it. I haven't. I like Black Mirror. We will check that out. I've seen (laughs) some of those episodes. Yeah, but even if you look at what we're doing already today, I mean, when I go on Facebook, it tells me where I was a year ago, seven years ago, 10 years ago. I don't need to remember anybody's birthday. It's my outsourced memory. And it's become that more and more and more. So we're already having some of those ways in which you're encroaching on things that we didn't plan for it to. That was the only reason I didn't want to delete Facebook. I didn't want to lose everybody's birthdays. Yeah. Uh, It's uh, exciting, scary, and unbelievably compelling to me all at the same time what we're this space that we're in as humanity in this uh, time of transformation heather we're going to take you into a speed round 30 seconds roughly for you to answer each one of these questions as best you can within 30 (laughs) yeah 
What is something simple and completely analog that you cherish? A bonfire. Ah, nice. How should parents address the what do you want to be when you grow up question? What are you interested in? Like it. What are people getting wrong about the future of work? Uh, I think most of the time I'm not really talking about the future work. I'm talking about the now of work, but the word future sells better. So I'm not calling <laughs> now of work strategist, but it, it just, it's basically telling the fish how the water is because a lot of changes that have taken place that people haven't acknowledged and haven't adapted to, or even really haven't realized they're, they're doing already. Mm. Since we agree that continuous and rapid learning is one of the top superpowers now and for the foreseeable future, what's a good and easy way for people to get a better sense of their learning style? Um, realize when you're resisting something, it's probably because you've hit a point of fear and that's usually around changing in some way or adapting in some way. So pay attention to that. Where, where is that fear coming from? And then pay attention to what are the first things you start to do either in the beginning of the day or you save for the end of the day, because those tend to be the things that you feel most comfortable and excited about learning and doing. You are self-described as a belligerent optimist, which we love. <laughs> what, what makes you optimistic about the future? I think that in general, humans are good more often than not. Not every, not every, one, every single one of them. But in mass, humans are good and they want to do the right thing. And I think that um, we're going to see that going forward as we redesign collectively the next best versions of ourselves. I think we're going to see us move beyond some of the hiccups of the last few years. On the opposite spectrum, who or what inspires you to keep going when you get down or when you struggle? You know, I have a, I have a brother who... Um, it was adopted when I was seven and he was six. He had, it was diagnosed with a rare form of leukemia when he was 18 and I was nine, 17 and I was 18. He had a bone marrow transplant. He's had six strokes. He's had a heart attack. He's now battling at the end of his life. He's in hospice uh, with cancer. And he just comes back every single time with optimism. I can't, you know, it makes me tear up, but I cannot be down when I have so much potential in front of me. Mm. That is beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. Heather, where can our audience find you and learn more about your work? All right, well, I'm taking a current break from Twitter, but I'm very active on LinkedIn where I post everything I'm reading and, and notes on, on things that other people tag me and that I'm inspired about. And then uh, the best way to sort of contact me for speaking or books or articles is my website, heathermcgowan.com. Awesome. Heather, Wow. You are a force for good. Thank you for the straight talk, the candor, for the, the beautiful way that you hold this conversation, for representing sides of this conversation that everybody else is scared to represent. Thank you for helping us find our path forward and for, for coming to the show where we can have this conversation and amplify your voice to share it with even more people. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you for joining us on this journey. In a world where attention is scarce and content is abundant, it means a lot. To learn more about this episode, go to disruptedwork.com forward slash podcast, where you can find show notes and key details about the episode, our guests, and how to connect with us. Our website also contains additional resources for learning, including our future work mindset model and action plan. 
The best way you can support the disrupted workforce is to subscribe to our show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. To help others thrive in the future work, spread the word by rating and reviewing the podcast and sharing your favorite episodes with the people you care about. Disrupt yourself to unlock your future.